1: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here today on the New Books Network's History Channel with Assistant Professor of History at Queen Mary University in London, Noam Magor. In 2017, he published Brahmin Capitalism, Frontiers of Wealth and Populism in America's First Gilded Age, published by Harvard University Press. We're going to be discussing that book today. First off, though, welcome, Noam, to the show.
2: Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So... What prompted you to study, quoting you, how the moneyed elite of Boston, the folks known as the Boston Brahmins, mobilized their saved resources out of cotton manufacturing in New England toward the Great West? And what also prompted you to examine new frontiers of social contestation in the urban East and Great West?
2: Um, Yes, great, great. Big question. Uh, So with your permission, maybe I could take a couple of steps back. To uh, sure. kind of trace my, my steps uh, to, to this uh, topic, um, I actually did not begin this book project with a particular interest in the Boston Brahmins or in Boston or uh, you know an interest in uh, rich people. Uh, that was not my intention. What I really wanted to do was to revisit the capitalist transformation of the Gilded Age, uh, and I was looking for a good vantage point from which to do that um i had a kind of dissatisfaction you know always with the in the history survey i always was dissatisfied with the lecture that came after the lecture about reconstruction uh where it felt like things were kind of being fast forwarded through uh forwarded through uh where capitalism kind of takes a life of its own uh becomes a kind of uh, inexorable uh process i think the scholarship is revisiting this now um I think Richard White recently called the Gilded Age flyover country. So he's encouraging people to come back to this period uh, and revisit it. Um, And I think in the literature, there has been a kind of tendency, uh, as I said, to fast forward through this period, uh, industrialization, urbanization, immigration, sort of fast forwarding through this, casting this in terms of a a type of modernization story uh, and try to get to the progressive era, Uh, where history kind of comes back into the picture, and then we can see how or or think about how Americans adapted to uh, modern life, how they adapted politically, socially, uh, and culturally, uh, you know, in large part through labor mobilization and the the creation of uh, a kind of welfare regulatory state. Um, So I wanted to take a few steps back and say, hold on, um, so how did this so-called capitalist modernity Uh, How did this come about uh, in the first place? Uh, Take it off the pedestal, uh, treat it uh, in a way that we treat other historical uh, processes as something that was contingent, uh, contentious, contradictory, uh, in some ways surprising, unlikely. Um, So not as a kind of logic, capitalist logic, that simply unfolds, uh, but as a a historical uh, process. Uh, And... This ultimately brought me to uh, these so-called Boston Brahmins, the upper class uh, of Boston, kind of capitalist class, um, who um, I realized were key actors in this massive economic transformation of the late 19th century. Um, I liked looking at the process through, uh, through, their, uh, through, through their eyes, because um, the more I read their letters, uh, their pamphlets, or kind of uh, tried to understand their perspective, You know, they thought about capitalism as a project, as something that they were uh, taking on uh, rather than something that kind of descended upon society. Um, There are a couple of additional benefits to looking at the Gilded Age through uh, their perspective, uh, primarily in terms of dispelling some myths uh, about uh, the Gilded Age. I think the first myth about the Gilded Age that I wanted to uh, do away with is the myth of the robber barons. Um, uh, you might be familiar with it or your listeners might be familiar with it. Um, this is a literature about the period that associates capitalism, uh, with a kind of set of upstart capitalists, uh, people who were morally suspect, rapacious, reckless, corrupt, uh, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Jay Gould, Leland Stanford, those, that kind of cast of characters, um, and it associates capitalism or the rise of industrial capitalism with a type of new money uh, that brings uh, corruption. It kind of corrupts capitalism to the core in a sense. Um, I never liked the, the normativity of this literature, this kind of emphasis on ethics and morality uh, with the idea that you know, if America had better capitalists, if uh, American capitali- capitalists were not uh, as rec- reckless and corrupt, um maybe capitalism would have been uh would have been better if it had been governed by better men prudent educated ethical uh responsible um so this has been a kind of persistent um presence in the literature uh despite efforts to to kind of push back uh against it um and i thought you know, the Boston Brahmins are excellent as a way of of rethinking that idea because they are uh, the most educated, prudent, ethical, responsible characters on the scene. They're the best, kind of the most responsible capitalists uh, on the scene in the late 19th century. And when you look at their papers, you realize that they're pretty much doing the same things that these other rapacious capitalists are doing. Um, So they are just as deeply involved and deeply engaged uh, in in that capitalist transformation uh, they invest in the same ventures uh, they are just as aggressive uh, perhaps even more aggressive than uh, these other less refined uh, capitalists that often uh, get most of the attention uh, they're literally in bed with these other these parvenu uh, elements so this really challenges the idea of a kind of old, Aristocratic class that's in decline in the Gilded Age and being replaced by these uh, newcomers. Um, no, you know, Bostonian capitalists, uh, capital kind of an old, uh, old money capital is very much in the driver's seat uh, during this, um, uh, you know, key phase in American uh, industrialization. It really dispels this notion of morality and ethics. It really puts. Um, emphasis on something else, you know, much, much more uh, systemic uh, forces that are, uh, that are at play. And by the way, I don't think, you know, if you read the, the writings of the Boston Brahmins, part of the, um, you know, one insight that I gained by looking at that is that I think it's not a coincidence that we think about the period as, you know, we think about these bad capitalists, these robber barons that come to the fore during the Gilded Age, uh, in a way, the Brahmins um, kind of forged or they they created this narrative. They, I, I would argue, invented uh, this narrative about the, the robber barons, uh, which was very convenient because what they could always say is, you know, if you look at capitalism and you question why is there so much economic volatility, corruption, inequality, speculative bu- speculative bubbles, you know, this is not our fault. That's the fault of these other guys uh, who corrupted a system that otherwise would be... Uh, you know, robust, productive, uh, prosperous. So they could always point these other guys, uh, these robber barons as corrupting influences on uh, what is otherwise a flourishing uh, and and moral system, ethical system. Um, so in other words, so this is the one uh, myth that I was uh, trying to challenge with use of the, the Boston Brahmins, I would say. Uh, the other uh, big myth uh, that the Bas Brahmins help us uh, uh, dispel is the myth about the Gilded Age as the kind of era of laissez-faire, um, you know, an age of unregulated capitalism with government is weak, inactive, non-interventionist. Uh, I also, this was part of my my goal to, to rethink that. Um, this also, I'm following some um, some important. Uh, characters in that some important historians uh, in that respect, uh, people like uh, Bill Novak, uh, Gary Gersel, more recently uh, made the argument. You know, really brought the state back in when it comes to uh, to the Gilded Age. Uh, so I followed in their footsteps, uh, also in the footsteps of Carl uh, Polanyi, who argued uh, that markets are always made by political institutions, uh, and therefore. Uh, trying to bring government back in uh, as very much present and and crucial uh, for uh, economic life or the economic transition of uh, of the Gilded Age. So instead of emphasizing the absence of institutions, kind of unregulated market, I wanted to emphasize uh, the dense ecology of state institutions uh, in this period. I'm sure we'll get into that uh, later on. Uh, thinking about American capitalism as actually emerging out of these political political contests uh, over the shape of state institutions, again, not from a kind of internal inexorable logic uh, of capital that was easy to do because the Brahmins were uh, political actors. They were quite conscious that politics really mattered, the state really mattered, political institutions really mattered. Uh, They played politics. They were important political actors. Uh, So therefore, thinking about the period through their perspective was again uh, helpful in that respect. So just <laughs> to summarize, um, yes, the, the, the Brahmins became critical for all of these various interventions, um, you know interrogating the emergence of modern capitalism in historically grounded ways, um, pushing back against the, the myth of the robber barons as if you know capitalism thinking about it in moral terms and ethical terms uh, rather than in terms of power. Um, And finally, uh, thinking about the Gilded Age uh, as an age of um, where the state is very much uh, present and uh, politics is highly contentious, and this is actually fundamental to how uh, the economy is transformed uh, in those decades.
1: For our listeners, please briefly trace the rise of New England cotton manufacturing the role of organizations such as the Hospital Life Insurance Company, and the causes as well as consequences of the financial panic of 1857.
2: Okay, so um, if you look at the, um, you know, I started to look at the Boston Brahmins in the late 19th century, and you look at their ledgers, you look at their letters, uh, and by that point, you see that they're very engaged, as you mentioned earlier, in various ventures in the American West. Uh, they're very much, by that point, um, what we would today call investment bankers. They invest in railroads and in other uh, extractive, mostly extractive industries uh, in the West. And when I so I became aware of that, um, and I wanted to understand how that came about. Because uh, if you take your typical kind of business history or economic history survey, Um, Kind of the last time that you really hear about the Bostonians as, you know, key kind of strategic economic actors or as as important historical figures um, in that respect, uh, it's um, when you hear about the founding of the the textile industry in New England uh, around the towns of uh, uh, Waltham, Lowell. Uh, This is really the origins of a large scale industrialization in America. Uh, you hear about folks like Abbott Lawrence, Nathan Appleton. Uh, you might hear about the Lowell Girls, a kind of benign form of capitalism that they uh, created with a sense of paternalism for their workers. Um, this is really a kind of inflection point in the history of American uh, capitalism. But then uh, these Bostonians pretty much fade away. So the idea is that you know they found a system and then it kind of takes off and it unfolds from there. Uh, but they they are not really... They don't really continue to be key uh, actors in, um, in those kinds of surveys. So I wanted to know, okay, so how do we get from textiles to finance? How do we, um, how do we get uh, from this moment of founding of uh, Waltham and Lowell to uh, these Bostonians as investment uh, bankers uh, from investing in New England to investing far away uh, in the Great West? Uh, and again, I'm thinking about it. You know, is this simply an aut- autonomous economic shift? Is it just you know laws of physics that capital basically drifts away and it shifts from old to new? Um, how do we make sense of these types of uh, these types of transitions? Uh, something that you know is very much in the air, obviously uh, today uh, as we think about uh, contemporary capitalism, kind of moving from manufacturing to finance. Um, so. So I started to the the goal of this first chapter that you that you refer to is to really try to fill it in and give people a, a sense of the full arc of textile industrialization uh in New England um and trying to see uh how this there's a kind of system uh, a new what we might call a kind of re- new regime of accumulation that emerges how Uh, how uh, Bostonians move from a system where most of their profits are made in manufacturing uh, to a system where most of their profits are made through financial uh, investment. And um, what I realized is it was actually quite a complicated uh, story uh, that involved economic, political, and social forces, ideological forces as well. So it's not quite, I'm trying to, I was trying to Think about it not simply in, in, in terms of a type of economic determinism, uh, but broadly in political economic terms that indeed incorporate all of these other uh, facets, all of these other dimensions. so um, so as I said, yes, this chapter uncovers the full arc of the textile industry, uh, and what you realize when you um, follow when you forward uh, when you move forward in time from the founding on, of Lowell, uh, which is indeed a hugely successful uh, textile town, it's very profitable. Uh, it encourages capitalism, bo- capitalists in Boston to basically build another Lowell and another Lowell. So they take this first model and they proliferate it throughout the, uh, the various streams and, and waterfalls of, uh, of new England and it proves hugely successful. And they do that um you know, quite successfully for about uh, 30, 40 years. Um, You know, this, so tracing this chapter, this process by which textile industry, the textile industry really really becomes the kind of core uh, for these these businessmen. This becomes the core kind of source of profits and source of accumulation for them. Uh, They basically, they get the profits, they reinvest, they build more mills and more uh, textile towns Uh, around the region you see how they work as a as a class they don't really work as individuals Uh, they go in in groups of investments they they spread risk Uh, they then create uh, vehicles financial institutions like the one that you mentioned the hospital life insurance company it's of course not a not an not really quite an insurance company it's more like an investment vehicle that collectively invests uh the savings the resources it's was described I think as the savings bank of uh, of the Boston uh, elite of the affluent. So this is how they pool resources together. A lot of this uh, throughout the antebellum period, really up to the 1850s, uh, the money is really invested quite heavily in the textile, uh, in a- the textile manufacturing. Um, what we see also in this period is a real kind of urgency uh, when you, when you read these Bostonians, a real urgency around uh, the imperative of, invest, of investing money. Uh, they really have a kind of sense of alarm of, about how to keep money uh, constantly in motion uh, in profitable, uh, profitable ways. So once they become a class and they accumulate capital, they're constantly alarmed about uh, where to put this money, how to invest it, how to keep it growing, uh, how to preserve it, how to keep it viable for future generations. Uh, as a way of of really cementing uh, the the status of these these, uh, affluent uh, families. There's a lot of intermarriages, various social institutions uh, like the Athenaeum. uh, Harvard College really emerges in this period as kind of key sites for elite socialization. So we really see uh, textile industrialization uh, as a class project. It's a collective project of this this elite class. Um, So... However, unfortunately, um, after about 30 or 40 years, uh, as you move into, into the 1840s and 1850s, um, and they proliferate these, uh, these mill towns, uh, the industry uh, reaches a point of saturation, uh, a point of crisis. Uh, they observe a type of uh, what we would call overinvestment in this industry. There's too much capacity. They're making too much fabric uh, in the context of uh, declining uh, profits. Um, and so in 1857, in this crisis that you refer to, uh, the last two textile ventures that they launched in uh, Lawrence and Holyoke go uh, totally uh, bust. So um, so after about 30, 40 years, there's this type of economic crisis, this kind of panic uh, forces these Brahmins to begin to look for new types of investments outside of textile. They realize we can't just keep doing the same thing uh, and reap the profits. We have to uh, find new channels uh, of investment, new ways of making money. Um, okay, But what complicates the story, and this is where uh, I go back to this point about economic determinism, that what I realize is that this kind of pivot, this reorientation, the economic imperatives the drive to uh to make uh to uh to find profitable ventures just that kind of economic imperative in itself uh was not enough to get the brahmins to shift in a new uh direction um and it really it tells us something about how capitalists operate that they're not godlike they don't see the future uh they don't necessarily understand that okay one thing is uh, has exhausted itself and so so we need to uh shift to uh to a new industry uh rather as long as they are deeply invested in something they try to revive it uh they and and this is what uh what you find from these Bostonians that throughout the 1850s they're really struggling to keep the textile industry uh, afloat to kind of to to keep it uh alive and so uh in the 1850s um this economic crisis that i mentioned the uh, crisis of profitability in the textile industry um of course collides uh with the huge political crisis uh of this decade a crisis over uh over slavery so the brahmins are knee deep at that point in cotton manufacturing um and as i said they do their best to preserve the industry which at that point means uh doing their best to preserve uh the union to reconcile with the South, uh, push back against uh, abolitionist sentiment, Uh, the older generation of Brahmins who had really come to power on the shoulders of cotton uh, manufacturing. They had an intimate relations with their friends uh, in the South, their cotton suppliers. Uh, They really fight tooth and nail against uh, the coming of the Civil War, against what they see as this kind of fanatical anti-slavery tendency uh, that emerges in Massachusetts in a, in a very strong way in uh, in politics in the 1850s. So the forces of change, um, these forces of change politically uh, come from the grassroots. Uh, you see a kind of series of uh, political parties. Um, I call it, I think, in the book, a populist insurgency, the Free Soil Party, the Know-Nothing Party. Uh, finally, the Republican Party um, You know, Charles Sumner uh, famously calls them out. He says this is an insurgency against the Lords of the Loom and Lords of the Lash, this kind of uh, uh, inner regional uh, elite alliance of uh, slaveholders and cotton manufacturers. Uh, This grassroots insurgency is anti-slavery and uh, uh, anti-elitist. So this is the context of the 1850s Um, So this is an economic crisis. Now it's compounded by a political crisis, controversy over slavery. Uh, And then something really interesting happens in the story um, uh, where I introduce there's a generational uh, component uh, to the story as well as in the 1850s, you see a younger generation of Brahmins, um, people who uh, grew up in these wealthy families in Boston Uh, And they begin to sense and to understand that fighting on the side of slavery is really a losing cause. Uh, They begin to distance themselves from the more orthodox politics of the elite at that point. Uh, Their perspective is basically our alliance with the South was a type of marriage of convenience. um, But the political and moral costs of this alliance uh, were becoming too high. Uh, So you begin to hear voices from within the elite. um, And as I said, especially from the younger generation, uh, Harvard College students, et cetera, um, uh, they begin to shift their allegiances. They begin to sympathize with the anti-slavery cause. Uh, They realize that their legitimacy as an elite class is in question uh, and that they must step up. Um, And they indeed, many of them eventually sign up to fight in the Civil War. And for many decades later they use this experience to validate their public credentials. This is basically um, they redeem themselves uh, in public life uh, as a as a result. so um, so this is the kind of arc that um, that I try to trace. So the shift from uh, textiles to finance um, is is driven by all of these various factors these. Uh, economic factors, but also political, social, and ideological factors that begin to move the Boston Brahmins in a very uh, new direction uh, after uh, the Civil War.
1: So on that note, how did elite young veterans such as Henry Lee Higginson and Charles Francis Adams Jr., as well as uh, Thomas Jefferson Coolidge, come to replace their own post-war vision for cheap cotton with free labor, with these new mining and stockyard ventures.
2: Yes. So, um, so as I mentioned, there is an older generation that's trying, you know, really very much until um, the Civil War breaks out. And even um, during the, the war and, and in the immediate aftermath of the war, it's really trying to revive um, the uh, cotton complex, um, c- including with you know, basically their solution Um, increasingly for for people who are really interested and concerned about the cotton uh, industry, they're thinking what we need is cheaper cotton. And perhaps they begin to argue that uh, we could um, create a cheap uh, supply of raw cotton in New England if we replace slave labor with free labor. Uh, So this becomes part of their uh, part of their uh, agenda. Um, But I think much more significantly at this point, there's a new generation. Some of the names you mentioned, Charles Francis uh, Francis Adams Jr., Henry Lee Higginson, uh, Alexander Agassiz, some of these guys. These are guys who literally grew up in in Harvard Yard. They're very much members of this older uh, elite, uh, elite. but uh, individually, uh, because of the families they came from, they were never really like the deep insiders of the cotton industry. Uh, so it's much easier for them to basically jump ship or uh perhaps more accurately kind of reshape reorient the ship toward new uh horizons which uh turns out to be these new uh extractive industries in uh in the west uh and again this is not a simple transition uh it's not you know it's not like today where they basically go online and they sell their textile stocks and they buy railroad stocks in the west um they have to, in a way, uh, to create these new vehicles of accumulation, these new ventures, uh, they have to create those uh, uh, those new industries in the West, and they become uh, remarkably engaged, especially this is this kind of a surprising discovery when you go into an archive and you ex- you expect to find these patrician Bostonians with a reputation for being soft, being genteel, uh, being kind of uninterested in economic questions. Uh, men of letters, et cetera. Uh, and you find them knee deep in these, you know, quite uh, gruesome industries in the West, particularly in mining, uh, meatpacking, stockyards, uh, railroads. Um, so it's quite striking, but they become quite aggressive in forging these new uh, institutions. Um, and for a time, it's kind of questionable. It's not clear at that point that you could take a lot of money Uh, a lot of capital and invest it in, uh, say, a copper mine deep in the forests of Michigan, uh, or that you can take a lot of money and invest it in a stockyard uh, on the frontier uh, in places like Kansas City, or that you can build railroads out west in these really uh, unpopulated regions or underpopulated regions, uh, regions that have not yet become kind of productive uh, parts of uh, the economy of the united states uh it's not clear that you can build that kind of infrastructure those types of ventures and that uh those can actually uh be profitable um so but no but they take these in, these ventures on they go out there they're very uh proactive uh very aggressive as i mentioned um, and uh they prove the viability of these investments and 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 as a result they basically uh, pull the the boston uh, business community with them uh so as they show that that yes you can you can turn a profit um uh investing in these types of um industries uh the financial community the business community of boston basically reorients along uh with them follows them into into these regions so if you if you look at uh the ledgers the investment portfolios of bostonians you see all of these uh, elite families start, suddenly, they gradually uh, buy up these shares. They move, they sell their textile shares, um, uh, their investments in cotton manufacturing uh, and the like, and they begin to buy these new financial uh, uh, stocks, uh, financial instruments. Um, they begin to invest in these Western uh, Western ventures. So this is the kind of pivot that I'm uh, that I'm tracing.
1: What were the ideological commitments of proponents of the Boston annexation movement, such as Charles Slack? Conversely, what were the intertwined dualities espoused by laissez-faire metropolis proponents of township autonomy, such as uh, Benjamin Harris? In response, if you can also briefly address um, how these annexation debates altered urban landscapes.
2: Okay. Um, Okay. So, So with this, we're really transitioning... Uh, more deeply into um, urban politics, Uh, which incidentally, this is actually where I kind of the thread that I, that started this, uh, this project initially as a dissertation, it started out very much as a kind of uh, a study in urban, uh, in urban politics um, before, before I um, kind of reoriented the project much more around these, these Bostonians for reasons that I mentioned earlier. Um, So, so yeah, so I turn so um you know what's interesting and the reason that this kind of jump started the project is that when you go into urban politics in in the late 19th century and you understand this larger broader context that I mentioned earlier about the transition to finance uh you realize how controversial this is in urban politics at the time. Uh so um so this is uh, something that is debated uh, in urban politics at the time, whether it's indeed a good thing for so sure. So the elite, the kind of the leading banking institutions, the financial institutions are pivoting to the West. Uh, they are moving uh, to these new frontiers of investment. But then it, the question becomes in urban politics, is this really a viable vision for the urban population as a whole? Is this a good thing for Boston to become um, not the center of a manufacturing region, uh, but rather uh, a national financial uh, center and um, I was looking for kind um, um, con- of moments of controversy in urban politics where uh, contention over this this new vision for the economic uh, direction of the of the city where these were contested um, and uh, Came, you know the people who came to the fore, people like that you mentioned, like Charles Slack, uh, were um, I call them urban populists. These are people who are uh, actually very engaged previously in the anti-slavery battles of the 1850s. These are uh, they're kind of they come out of this producerist tradition. Um, they are kind of working class or upper uh, upper working class, lower middle class uh, figures who really come to the fore and. Uh, challenge this new financial orientation of the city. They say, no, Boston should not become a national financial uh, center. How would we as producers, as workers, how would we benefit from this transition? Instead, they say, no, we need to um, take initiative and remake Boston. So it's not going to be textile industry uh, anymore, but let's democratize the industrial economy of the region. Let's create... um, Let's take initiative in politics to remake the manufacturing uh, landscape of uh, of the metropolis. Um, and they come up with some very um, interesting initiatives uh, to actually to realize this vision. Um, you know, a lot of what I was thinking about when I was looking at these, these debates is, you know, that there is a tendency, as maybe perhaps in part of this, uh, kind of in light of this larger modernization story that I mentioned earlier um, to think about urban politics in in terms of these various dichotomies uh, corrupt bosses uh, versus reformers uh, the kind of modernizers versus traditionalists um, and but what I realized um, you know and the thing that I was struck by looking at urban politics in Boston at this period is that it's actually the pivot is very different. It's actually not the modernizers versus the traditionalists, but it's much more two competing visions of what industrial modernity uh, could be about. Um, and the the counter vision to the elite finance driven vision uh, comes from these urban populists who are really thinking of, proactively about how to use city government to remake the metropolis into a kind of democratic industrial. Uh, Uh, city that they envision. uh, And their big kind of agenda uh, piece um, for that, for realizing that, is the annexation uh, movement. So the idea, their idea is, um, you know, Boston until that point is uh, very much a kind of port and a few neighborhoods uh, organized around commerce. Most of the industrial growth that took place in earlier decades, as I mentioned earlier, took place on the kind of the streams and more on the periphery uh, of of New England. Uh, Their idea is for the city to take on these vast new territories and invest very heavily in urban infrastructure. Uh, And uh, as a way, this is a kind of uh, development project. Uh, The city will build the infrastructure, Will tax the elites to finance it um, and create new neighborhoods. Uh, this will uh, create housing. It will provide jobs. It will nurture kind of a very diverse uh, landscape, uh, kind of industrial landscape of urban manufacturers. This is their uh, their big uh, vision. Uh, the elite, of course, is uh, horrified by this uh, by this idea. They think of this. This is wasteful. Instead, we should be prudent. We should keep government small we shouldn't increase uh, municipal budgets, that's a waste. Uh, why should we worry about metropolitan development and manufacturing in the metropolitan area where we could be financial kind of a, a national financial centers and basically reap the uh, benefits of uh, continental industrialization? Um, they think that this focus on the metropolis is way too narrow, it's way too limited, it's parochial, um, and it's also inefficient, it's wasteful, So there's a a collision in urban politics over this annexation uh, agenda. Um, Surprisingly, perhaps, these populists that I mentioned are incredibly successful uh, in actually forcing this this platform. They annex massive territories. A lot of the areas of what today is part of the city of Boston uh, were uh, fairly rural places up to that point, uh, and they get annexed in the aftermath of the Civil War. As this kind of populist wave is going through the city, they annex these territories, they invest very heavily in infrastructure, they create new neighborhoods, new urban neighborhoods, and they actually um, are incredibly successful in pushing back against this financial vision. And they make Boston into, uh, for the first time, Boston becomes the largest uh, manufacturing center in Massachusetts. So it overtakes some of these satellite cities that had been the focal point of industrialization uh, up to that up to that uh, point.
1: For our listeners, can you briefly elucidate the property tax debates between Boston Tax Assessor Thomas Hills and Federal Revenue Commissioner David Wells. You can address any number of topics, such as the uh, taxation and and exemptions on Boston rural lands versus urban buildings, movable versus immovable immovable property, uh, promotion of an urban state but with capitalist policy, and state regulation of various organizations.
2: Uh, Yes, so you know, this actually lines up really well with um, what I mentioned earlier with these annexation debates, the annexation, the debate over what the boundaries of the city would be uh, and whether these rural towns should become part of the, uh, the metropolis. And as I said, the populace are incredibly successful in integrating these territories into the city. Um, and this is very expensive. Uh, it, uh, you can see uh, city budgets really uh, uh, expanding as a result of this territorial expansion. And so this shifts the political debate away from annexation. Now they begin to debate, okay, so who's going to pay for uh, the costs of this metropolitan uh, expansion uh, in Boston? And so I've uncovered this, this fascinating. So there are debates over taxes, but what's fascinating about this particular one is that it gets very ideological um, and it's something that maybe we'll get uh uh, get at with another with a couple of the other uh questions but it fascinated me uh to see that even as they uh debate okay the f- fiscal cost so who's going to bear the burden of paying for public services in boston who's going to pay for sewers and water lines and parks and schools and um you know a whole range of uh, government services that are being provided uh at that point who's going to to pay for it Um, And the debate pivots over whether uh, this whether uh, financial forms of property should be taxed to help pay for for these urban expenses. So basically, as these Bostonians are shifting and they're becoming quite uh, affluent uh, based on investments that they have out west, uh, the city comes in and wants them to wants to tax these uh, forms of property to help pay for uh, urban uh, costs uh, in Boston uh, itself, and this becomes controversial, um, so even as they debate this uh, this as a tax uh, question, uh, and you can think of it as a kind of technical question about the tax code, and it gets quite detailed, um, what you see is um, very different, uh, just like with annexation, you see very different visions of political economy, very different um, positions on how a modern political economy, uh, urban and industrial, how it could be uh, organized, um uh David Wells is a kind of national he's not really a bostonian he's a he's a new Englander but he's a, he's a really a national uh figure who authors this really influential report on uh reforming urban taxation in America at that point. It becomes a kind of a political uh topic not issue not just in boston but but nationally and he articulates a kind of elite perspective and he says he tries to to make a persuasive case but for why it would make sense to exempt uh, financial forms of property um, stocks and bonds from urban taxation Um, and he elaborates a kind of a reform agenda that basically says we should uh, tax real estate only we should not tax these other forms of uh, property Uh, part of the argument is that you know if you do that it's counterproductive because Financial forms of property are very mobile, so they'll just migrate to other places. You're going to lose all of your... You're going to lose the goose that lays the golden eggs, the uh, elite that owns the property. You're not going to have anybody to to tax, uh, so it would be counterproductive. Uh, Instead, the city should um, tax uh, exclusively uh, real estate because real estate can't go anywhere. Um, uh, Boston tax assessor Thomas Hills who is on the kind of populist side of this debate, um, writes the retort, uh, and he justifies, he explains why uh, the city has been taxing uh, financial forms of property and why it should uh, continue to do that, uh, because it's moral and ethical, and uh, because it supports uh, good uh, government policies. uh, And Uh, More generally, he begins to become a kind of grassroots theorist of taxation. So he has a theory of what property, uh, what property, in fact, is. Um, And he says, you know, property is always a collective thing. It's always, um, you know, nobody owns property individually. Property is always part of um, uh, kind of a collective. It's always part of society. And therefore, um, it's perfectly justifiable, moral, ethical, for the city to tax its affluent citizens uh, to pay for what the city determines be deems to be uh, worthwhile uh, public expenditures. So so he says, yes, we should tax real estate, uh, but we should also tax these uh, shares, these financial uh, forms of property. Uh, This is the only way that we can ultimately uh, pay for uh, robust public services uh, in the city. Again, um, you know maybe I, I I'm not quite underscoring it enough, but the echoes of that in the contemporary context uh, with suburbanization issues of suburbanization and um, you know, capital flight and um, the movement of um, you know affluent taxpayers uh, to to the suburbs, I saw echoes of that in this earlier debate um, however remarkably in this earlier moments it's actually the The populists who are on uh, the the winning side of this of these controversies, they actually are very success. They're successful in annexing these rural towns and imposing high taxes at that point. Uh, So they are realizing their vision. They're not uh, they are forward looking. They're not They're not deferential to these larger forces of uh, you know supply and demand. They're taking political action uh, to reshape uh, the political economy of. Uh, of their city. Uh, this is true in Boston. It's also true in many other places uh, at, that, uh, at that point. So you see this kind of uh, what I would characterize as a kind of liberal reform uh, impulse of this period is very much on, on the, uh, the weak side. It's, uh, it's on the losing side uh, in the context of the late 1860s, uh, you know, pretty much through the 1870s and into the 1880s.
1: What were the roles of financial intermediaries uh, such as um, Henry David Bono in the migration of capital from Boston to the Great West and Mexico? In your response, if you can, uh, please address topics such as, you know, the trusts and prudence in the marketplace. You can address the Mexican Central Railway branch lines and those that role the dual director hosts for the St. Paul, Minneapolis and Manitoba Railroad.
2: Okay, so Henry uh, Davis Mina, uh whose uh, archive I I looked at uh, meticulously at the Mass, uh, Mass Historical Society for for several months, I was quite fascinated with him. Uh, first, I think I want to to, um, to mention how well he shows this connection between urban politics and this new financial orientation of the elite that uh, at that particular point, because the the way that I actually uh, uncovered him or, or got to him was because his father and brother were very engaged in these political debates over taxes. Uh, they were very worried about, uh, they're elite Bostonians, a very affluent family. They're very worried about uh, financial forms of property being taxed uh, and they weigh in and they mobilize uh, to push back against it. They kind of cast themselves a little bit like uh, David Wells, whom you mentioned earlier, As experts in this field and they write documents, they circulate these ideas about um, how Boston should reform its tax code uh, to basically offer them tax relief. Um, And uh, they're doing this. So as I'm reading these tax debates, they're mentioning Henry Minot, who is the brother who's out West um, on behalf of Bostonian uh, capitalists. He's kind of their representative in the West. He's helping uh, Bostonian investors make decisions about good and bad investments um, out in in the Great West. So he's kind of he represents the connection between urban politics and this, uh, you know, the financial the financialization of the the Bostonian uh, economy, so to speak. Um, so so yeah. So I read his papers and then I got into he, his his family, the Miner family. It's one of those. Kind of quintessential Bostonian families, very interesting uh, because uh, they are a family of uh, trustees, and the Bus- Bostonian, tra- the Boston trustee, is kind of a an I- very inter- interesting and important uh, figure in, uh, Bus- in Boston, but also more broadly in American capitalism in uh, the nineteenth century. Um, I mentioned earlier this problem that Bostonians had with investments of the problem of how once you accumulate wealth, how to keep it going, how to keep it growing, uh, how to keep it in motion. Um, And the Bostonian trustees are kind of at the core of that. They manage what they do is they manage wealth. They manage money for many of these older uh, families. Uh, Of course, you know, one generation um, makes the money, then they give it to the trustee to manage it for uh, for the following generations who are, uh, you know, sometimes viewed as less responsible, uh, perhaps kind of clueless in business. So, um, so the Minots are one of those uh, dynasties, these uh, dynasties in Boston, uh, these kind of old established uh, families that manage uh, immense sums of money uh, for, these, uh, for these wealthy Bostonian, uh, Bostonian families. It's actually quite, uh, quite striking to see that. Uh, when you actually see what they, uh, how much money they manage and how they do it. Um, I was quite uh, fascinated uh, with that. Now, um, this issue of prudence. So, you know, this is interesting for, for the kind of broadly for the history of capitalism in America, that very early on in Boston, this question of uh, emerges, which is actually quite fundamental to, you know, very fundamental to capitalism. Uh, The question emerges, uh, in that context of what is a prudent investment, okay? Uh, We talked earlier about the robber barons who are viewed as making reckless decisions, uh, rapaciously, uh, speculatively. So there is a kind of perennial dilemma around capitalism, uh, in capitalism. What is prudent investment when you're talking about a dynamic capitalist uh, capitalist system that's constantly uh, changing? On one hand, if you invest in one thing, so if the Bostonians had stayed with their textile shares uh, and not uh, moved into these new, uh, new areas of investment, then these shares decline in value over time. So that's not prudent to put your money in, in something that declines over time. And if you're thinking about it in generational terms, like these Bostonians uh, thought about their wealth, um, you're thinking about how to preserve wealth for 30, 40, 50 years, Um, you realize that staying put, staying uh, with your existing investments, that's not really an option. So you have to be dynamic. You have to update your portfolio, as they would say uh, today. On the other hand, then if you update too aggressively and you move into these uh, new ventures that are perhaps providing high profits, but they also tend to be more risky and speculative, and therefore um, you are putting the wealth at risk. So how do you find a balance between these two imperatives. You want to be dynamic and update the portfolio, but you don't want to be overly aggressive in a way that would jeopardize uh, the future of your, uh, of your family. Uh, and this actually um, comes up in court um, um, for, you know, I'm not going to elaborate all of the details, but it actually, there's a, a key court case um, uh, about what prudence actually means uh, and um Uh, the the judge comes up with uh, what then becomes known as the prudent man standard for fiduciaries. So it becomes kind of a court decision that dictates for people like the Minots in Boston who manage wealth, uh, what it means to be prudent. Uh, And what the court says is, well, there's no objective standard. I can't, you know, the court can't dictate, well, you have to put your portfolio in real estate and government uh, stocks. Instead, um the judge realizes no in you know when you're talking about capitalism you have to constantly update your uh investments you have to be dynamic um so the only standard for what it means to be prudent in that uh kind of context is um it's very subjective you have to basically uh, the court says you have to observe other men of prudence discretion and intelligence so you have to look at other what other elites are investing in and that is your definition if other Basically, if other people are doing it too, then it's prudent, okay? Um, I leave it to your (laughs) listeners to to kind of connect the dots and understand what the implications are uh, for that kind of standard. Um, So so yes, so uh, the minots are bound by this decision. When they manage money, they have to abide by this standard. They have to be prudent. Uh, But what's striking when you look at the late 19th century is that what prudence means in this context of the late 19th century is essentially um, you invest in very risky ventures in the West. You invest in railroad. You invest, as I mentioned, in these extractive industries that are quite cutting edge. So then we see the paradox of the situation uh, where uh, the most prudent managers of wealth in Boston, uh, the people who are considered to be the most um, risk averse and cautious, um, are uh, increasingly invested in uh, shares and stocks that are um, bonds that are, you know, by perhaps by more objective uh, standards would be considered uh, highly speculative. They definitely push the envelope. Uh, Henry Davis Minot um, is, is kind of my guy on the ground uh illuminating a lot of this process he's son to this elite family and um as he grows up he's kind of looking for uh purpose in life and he um uh dabbles in different things but then he really finds himself as um a kind of an excellent uh assessor of uh risk and 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 business possibilities in the west so this is a guy who is kind of fairly young uh but he's traveling all throughout the west in Minnesota you know, all the way to California, uh, definitely throughout the Midwest, uh, also, um, you know, other regions, uh, regions that are really just being integrated into um, the American economy at that point. And um, he's sending back letters, and he's instructing his father and the business community about where they should uh, put their money. Uh, wherever people in the West are quite cognizant of that, they know him, they know people like him. So whenever he arrives, you know, I found, I think I cite one letter from uh, Fargo where he arrives, uh, the entire city, basically the mayor and the chief banker and all of the kind of the elite of that particular place are waiting for him at the train station. They want to tell him, um, you know, we are the new um you know, we're going to be the new uh, Chicago, essentially. So you should buy real estate. You should invest with us. You should build railroads here because we're going to be the next boomtown uh, of the West. Uh, there are responsible people here on the ground. We are uh, managing the situation well for you. So they kind of lobby for their own town to be, um, to be the next destination for investments from, uh, from the East um and yeah, and that some of these towns obviously um grow and succeed other many others uh never really become these kinds of imperial centers as uh as their own boosters uh envision them to to perhaps become uh at one point
1: so this comes to actually a really compelling part of the book for me. In January 1877, the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanic Association petitioned to hold its 13th triennial exhibition on Boston Common. How and why did exhibition proponents deem product aesthetics, as well as knowledge of, quote, labor and toil, as crucial for patriotic prosperity? Can you also also elaborate on the public as individuals and the recreation dichotomies, poor and otherwise, advanced by opponents?
2: uh yes so um so here as we notice just to kind of summarize uh, the structure of the book so far as we're moving through it that this is really a book that tries to bring in the the urban east and the west together and show how um um the two sides of this of this relationship are defining and redefining one another um so here, uh, after traveling in the West with Henry Minot and, and kind of seeing these kind of new frontiers of investments where financial capital is going uh, in this period, uh, we come back to Boston to another type of, of kind of collision or controversy, urban controversy over this, uh, this exhibition on Boston Common. Uh, those of you who know Boston, they know that you know this is the kind of the, the premier public space uh, in downtown Boston, Uh, It has a long, it has a long history. So when um, this is a kind of association of local producers, small producers, mechanics, kind of skilled workers, uh, when they lobby to uh, have an exhibition on this space, this becomes a a kind of political controversy. Um, This is, um, so as I said, it's a premier public space. It's also uh, very close to Beacon Hill, and Back Bay, some of these affluent neighborhoods that are emerging in this period, and the elite residents of the, those neighborhoods are really uh, horrified uh, to think that these lowly mechanics are going to come in and occupy this public space uh, for you know a bunch of weeks. Um, you know, they're horrified. they think this is so. So they they oppose it on a, a variety of uh, in a variety of ways, uh, which I think in itself is quite interesting because um because as I mentioned earlier you see how questions of political economy questions about development and uh, manufacturing and uh, production finance um, are also questions about uh politics uh who ultimately gets to govern the city and also they are questions about they all they, they sometimes become questions about aesthetics, questions about what is ultimately beautiful? What makes something beautiful? Why is it that an exhibition of machines on, Boston, on the Boston Common um, from the elite's perspective is aesthetically horrifying, um, it's ugly. Um, and for these mechanics, that's the most uh, amazing, beautiful uh, thing that the city um, needs to celebrate. Uh, and they collide over this in a, you know, ser- series of hearings with city government where they debate this uh, this question. Um, so as I mentioned, this is in part uh, a debate about political economy. Uh, it's a debate about, you know, where value comes from. So for the elite, value comes from, you know, things that we would associate with, say, Adam Smith, Ricardo, people like that, division of labor, economic specialization, free market transactions and trade, uh, so they they this is part of their uh, their idea. They also think about it in relation to urban space, specialization of space. Uh, they push back against any kind of mix of uh, uh, mixing of uses of urban uses. So a place that's designed for leisure should not be used for manufacturing and commerce. Um, these mechanics, these uh, urban populists, as I call them, uh, come to the fore, and they really challenge this on a very fundamental way. They say no. Uh, value comes from, uh, not from specialization or division of labor, but it actually comes from the unity of intellectual and manual uh, labor. This is a kind of Lincoln, this is an idea that we would associate with Lincoln. Um, You know, he thought about it in relation to scientific uh, agriculture, uh, but they really bring it into the industrial age, into the age of manufacturing. Uh, They think, no, even in a modern industrial economy, um, it still rests on uh, kind of innovation that's only possible with uh, the combination of basically what they call skilled work. So it's the combination of um, the mind and the hand uh, working together. This is where value and innovation uh, comes from. Uh, and ultimately, they apply this more broadly. They say, you know, the future prosperity of Boston it's not is not going to rest on uh, its emergence as a financial center, uh, and then you know the money will trickle down to the broader population, but rather it has to be generated through a robust manufacturing uh, economy that can be um, that uh, that can be nurtured, uh, and this type of exhibition that puts on display uh, machines and instruments um, and skilled work. Um, they actually perform labor in these you know at the exhibition they demonstrate these machines in operation. They actually think this is a way of uh enlightening the public, educating the public, and this is actually would have uh, quite a beneficial uh economic uh effect on uh on the city. as I said, this also becomes a debate about beauty and aesthetics um you know, they think this is something to celebrate machines in operation. The noise, the um, the labor, all of this needs to be celebrated, and they think that the, me- the mechanics think this is uh, beautiful. Uh, the elites, uh, by definition, they, they think something that is utilitarian, something that's productive, that's functional, something that is connected with manufacturing, by definition, cannot be beautiful because beauty is, by definition, the opposite of uh, utility. Um, it's quite striking, you know, and, and, um, (laughs) um, you know, one feature that I really uh, appreciated about these exhibitions is that, you know, when they put these machines on display, they also put, uh, for example, fine arts, they put portraits, uh, paintings, uh, sculptures alongside engines, tools, inventions, um, all as products of human ingenuity. So they really push back against this hierarchy that says, you know, there are, you know, Some people who are kind of elevated and their role is to think, contemplate, uh, you know, design um, people who are educated in um, kind of more theoretical principles. And then you have uh, labor power, people who are executing that uh, with their with their bodies. Rather, they 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 want to think about these things uh, alongside one another as actually uh, quite uh, interconnected. So your ability to innovate is connected with your ability to your kind of your hands-on experience, your knowledge of material, uh, your knowledge of um, kind of engineering principles as they unfold in practice. Um, so, yes, so this is what the, the debate is about. So, again, in the debate about political economy comes a debate about um, about, yes, the economic future, but also – Who ultimately gets to dictate what would take place on Boston Common? Is it a space that uh, is preserved for certain uses? uh, Or can city government allocate it for these other purposes? Uh, So, you know, what's the authority of government? Uh, There's also, um, yes, there's also a kind of aspect of what uh, here in this story of what Habsbaum called the invention of tradition, which is a kind of theme that runs throughout the book. Uh, but the Brahmins are very good about doing that, and they basically also invent a tradition by which they say, we've never had, uh, you know, these types of exhibitions on Boston Common, so granting this request would be a total departure from longstanding practice. Um, you know, from time immemorial in Boston, uh, this space was always reserved for quiet contemplation. Uh, the mechanics call them out because they also have their own historical memory, and they say, that's – that's. Uh, um that's bs essentially um we you know this is an invention of a tradition that never existed because we actually always uh used boston common for a variety of uh commercial um you know celebrations and you know all sorts of uh, more utilitarian uses so the idea that this is somehow a sacred space that's preserved for cont- quiet contemplation and and we are uh, we need to be bound by that um, is is an invention.
1: So let's move on, actually, to the uh, state constitutional conventions. Okay how and, how and why did continental market consolidation unleash a powerful countervailing thrust of decentralization? Further, what were the outcomes of policy ideas by agrarian and labor representatives in Great West state constitutional conventions, which I alluded to earlier? particularly regarding, you know, you can water regulatory apparatuses, as well as the rights and privileges of corporations. And ultimately, why do you classify these representatives as populist?
2: Yes. So so here we shift back to, to the West in a sense. Um, so just like as this process of national market consolidation is controversial in the Northeast, in a place like Boston, and it is channeled into politics, urban politics. Um, here, this is another site of contestation, uh, political contestation over political economy, over the future of economic trajectory of, uh, of the country. Uh, and takes place in these state constitutional conventions. These are Western states that are, um, um, you know, they become territories right after the Civil War, and then by the 1880s, they... Uh, most of them, by the 1880s, they lobbied for statehood. Uh, in order to gain statehood, they have to write state constitutions, and those become, um, you know, arenas of uh, of debate. Uh, what I found most interesting about those debates is that the pivot of those debates was actually the relationship of these Western teritor- territories and Eastern finance. So this is the other side. This is kind of the Western perspective onto my Eastern financiers, these Boston Brahmins who are financing a lot of the development, uh, railroad construction and other industries in the West. Uh, and this becomes, again, politically controversial in the context of these state constitutional conventions where the rights of the investors are weighed against the the sovereignty of these new uh, emerging uh, emerging states. So the relationship. So uh, can we tax um Uh, financial investment that's coming in from the east? uh, Can we do that? Would that be economically uh, productive, counterproductive? Can we regulate water supply? Can we uh, create a property regime that benefits uh, these settlers as opposed to, um, you know, large corporations that are emerging in this period, railroad corporations, water corporations? Uh, What about labor? Uh, Can we Uh, Empower labor at the expense of employers. So, can we facilitate? Can we help our uh, our working population to organize uh, to push back against Pinkertons and other kind of private um, police forces in this period? Can we regulate railroads and uh, railroad shipping rates? All of these questions come up in these constitutional conventions because they're really about shaping a relationship between the the foreign investors how, is, is how they're referred to these investors who are coming in from New York and Boston um, primarily um, and um, and the settler co- uh, population uh, of the states and really a lot is at stake because whatever framework they come up with um, is going to shape the economic trajectory of those uh, territories in the in future decades now the the answer two of your questions why is this You know, why am I emphasizing decentralization, which is kind of a theme in the book throughout, is that, you know, there is a kind of modernization story about the American state that talks about, really thinks about this period in terms of centralization. So in terms of the growing power of the federal government uh, and the decline of of state authority and then municipal authority as well. So the, the center of gravity is assumed to be shifting back to Washington uh, washington d c um, but what what you you know what I was struck by is that actually uh, you know and these western states are a good example of that, you see a proliferation of these sub sub national political authorities, so you actually get many more states um, uh, gaining sovereignty and becoming part of the union, and every state has its own kind of proliferation of municipalities towns you know local uh, authorities so this is the the decentralization process that I that I underscore so even as capital is moving to the west and creating a kind of national economy there is um, um, there is a pushback there is a kind of countervailing tendency for um, so you see centralization kind of economic uh, centralization but at the same time you also see uh, political decentralization uh, more authorities uh, kind of authority proliferates um, and it's really interesting if you compare these uh, state constitutions that emerge, Colorado, Idaho, North and South Dakota, um, uh, the others as well, you see variations. They're not monolithic. They actually create, uh, depending on what the political uh, alignments were in the states at that point, farmers, miners, uh, outside capitalists, uh, local elites, Well, depending on the author- the, these alignments, the constitutional framework uh, changes um, significantly, varies significantly in these uh, different places. Uh, now, um, I use the word, again, I use the word populist, uh, lower P populist to talk about uh, representatives at these state uh, conventions. I mentioned earlier that I use populist also um, in the context of urban politics. Um, and maybe I can, I can justify why that is, um so I think part of it is as I kind of moved into the kind of the density, the, the thicket of the thick ecology of uh state institutions in the Gilded Age, um I realized, or my my sense was that what I always thought of as kind of, of the voice of the populist capital P Party or the populist movement of the late 19th century. Uh, or perhaps even the Knights of Labor uh, at that point, um, what I thought was kind of limited to those uh, kind of flagship movements of the late 19th century, grassroots movements that have been studied, um, what I realized is that actually a lot of their ideas and the way that they think about capitalism is not limited to these movements, uh, but it's actually uh, kind of pervades American politics in this period in a much broader way. So this kind of questioning of, uh, you know, that people who studied populism, like Goodwin, Postal, and some many of the others, this kind of different alternative uh, way of thinking about political economy is not limited to people who are capital P populists. but it's actually, um, you see it throughout uh, American politics uh, in, this, in this period. I think there is something, you know, obviously every case is a little different. The urban East is different from the West. Uh, but throughout, you see commonalities. You see a kind of questioning of the kind of orthodox, orthodox liberal political economy of the period in a variety of ways, and you see uh, a much more pragmatic sense of politics as uh, able to shape economic conditions. Uh, and I think this is ultimately the kind of um, the kind of de- defining feature of what populism is. It's uh, in this period. It's this uh, sense that political institutions um, can um, can manufacture, they can, uh, create, they can forge, uh, a type of, e- um, a type of economy, uh, they, it, uh, can create, uh, certain kinds of markets, um, that are more egalitarian, That are more, uh, kind of, they, they, that distribute resources more broadly, um, is kind of fundamental to what populism means in this period. And it's certainly not limited to these third party movements or, uh, these kind of, uh, uh, they're not at the margins of American politics, but they're actually quite at the core of what you find when you look at American politics uh, in this period more broadly. Which is why this is so. This is all to say why I bring in this word populism and why I use it actually in in quite a um, kind of a broad, uh, perhaps you know some critics would say loose way. But I go for um, for breadth as opposed to kind of a more strict construction of what a populist, uh, in fact, was.
1: So why did heterodox progressive political economists such as uh, Richard Ely advocate for the replacement of investment capital taxation with an income tax? And what were the consequences for Boston, if you can briefly address that?
2: Yes. Um, Okay, so this is kind of you're getting us to the kind of the end of the arc of the book where... Uh, we get into the 1890s and I began to think, okay, so you know, you had all these struggles, you have capital flight, um, capital movement, and uh, you know, where do we where where do we end up? And I thought it was quite telling that even a kind of heterodox, uh, you know, quite progressive political economist like Ely, who, you know, is well known for his radical positions, but when he comes into the, the debate about urban taxation in the late 19th century. Um, uh, and he kind of weighs in with his expertise. Um, he he echoes the positions that had previously been been articulated by the kind of the more conservative liberals uh, on the scene. So he recognizes someone uh, someone like Thomas Hill who, Hills, who was the kind of radical tax assessor of Boston. He recognizes him as his as an expert, but he ultimately takes the position that. Um, uh, that the liberal kind of more conservative sides of the debate uh, took earlier, uh, uh, they basically basically concede on this point of capital movement. He basically says, in these under these modern conditions, uh, we cannot tax financial forms of property because they'll just migrate to other places. So we have to concede defeat on that front and look for revenues in other uh, in other ways. Um, so so even the kind of progressive edge of reform at this point begins to retreat. It's no longer as ambitious about uh, taxation as uh, property taxation, as uh, kind of the earlier generation um, had been. And the consequences of that is that American cities become, they they become more impoverished. They become less able to envision uh, the type of uh, ambitious public action, uh, a kind of, you know, the kind of massive interventions uh, that they were able to, to uh, envision and in some ways execute earlier on. So the scope for government action on the urban level uh, really uh, contracts when um, you know, there is a kind of class of property that you can no longer, uh, no longer tax. So this creates a very different fiscal reality uh, for American cities, and they have to kind of abide by that. They have to work within that more constrained, uh, constrained space.
1: So can you uh, really briefly elaborate on how and why affluent Bostonians, such as uh, Mayor Nathan Matthews, why they decided to ally with immigrant leaders to exempt 16 private schools, including two or three parochial uh, Catholic schools, from supervision by the Boston Commonwealth Board of Education?
2: Okay, so... um... Yes. So this really kind of gets us to to kind of the the end of the narrative in a sense that, as I mentioned, structurally, uh, because of these uh, fiscal constraints, American cities and Boston in particular uh, become less ambitious about what they uh, can uh, accomplish and their ability to really reshape the political economy, uh, the urban political economy. These are kind of structural forces. Uh, But in this chapter, of course, structural forces in themselves are not never just sufficient to enact historical change. Okay, so um, so in this last chapter, I combine these, I I introduce these um, these fiscal constraints on city governments uh, in this period. But then I also show that elites take advantage of that opportunity. They mobilize in a new way in politics and they say, okay, now that that the constraints of the the fiscal capacity of the city, the ability of the city to do things is constrained. now it's our uh, kind of a moment of opportunity for us to step in with a new agenda. Um, And uh, they begin to play politics in a new way. So they create, as I mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, alliances with new constituencies. So in some ways they, I argue, um, you know, I kind of go out on a limb, but I say, you know, in a way, they invent ethnic politics in Boston. They reach out to these party bosses, these kind of ethnic leaders, and they forge political alliance with them. Um, And a lot of it has to do with uh, an alliance over fiscal retrenchment. So they're trying to lower taxes. They're trying to uh, shrink uh, municipal budgets um, and they play politics. So they forge alliances with people who, with other people in the community who might be sympathetic to that. Um, And the controversy over uh, public education is, um, uh, you know, captures that really, really well, because um, interestingly, the mayor of Boston steps in and and makes an argument against uh, generous funding for public education. Um, He says, you know, Boston has a kind of well-funded public education system at this point. It's too expensive. And also he makes the argument that it's coercive. Uh, It is... um, uh, it forces a kind of standard curriculum on every every individual so instead he begins to champ he champions uh private schools the autonomy of private schools uh, and this is kind of an opportunity for him to forge an alliance with some of these uh catholic leaders in the community who also are uh worried about the autonomy of their uh, of catholic schools at the same uh at the same time so we see the kind of the universality of the public education system uh is uh is in conflict with these reform, uh, this reform platform that has a fiscal dimension, so it's part of it is about cutting taxes, but it's also about you know what he says: the monopoly of the state over the means of education. Calls it. He uses socialism uh, to cast it. He says this is too socialistic for the state to dictate uh, the educational, uh, the educational curriculum uh, for, for everybody. There should be uh, free choice. Uh, there should be pluralism and more diversity in the system. Um, and it turns out to be a winning political uh, argument for him it, uh, uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of putting, I, I argue, he puts, the, um, he puts the, uh, um, the public school system on a fiscal diet. He stops building new schools. Basically, he marks that, he's kind of indicating that uh, from there, there on, there will be limits to how much the state's going to um, subsidize public education or pay for public education. Uh, at that point.
1: For our listeners, please provide a very brief critical assessment of that mayor, Mayor Matthews's 1895 report on municipal budget restrictions and full peripheral ward tax assessments, as well as the fiscal allocations of government revenue stalemate between uh, labor radical George McDe- George McNeil and a ma- majority of Thomas Jefferson Coolidge's 1897 commission over intangible property tax exemptions, and in the final analysis, can you briefly mention how how this stalemate precluded reform, and perhaps in a you know in a very kind of uh, significant way, or uh, facilitated uh, the great merger movement, or contributed yes. to it?
2: Well, yes, as you said, I'll keep it. I'll keep it brief. But this is again a kind of moment of. Of triumph, where some of these elite positions, uh, for example, on this issue of taxes, um, that were very much on kind of in the minority position earlier on, um, begin to move into the center and they become the kind of dominant voice in and uh, kind of the dominant perspective on how to structure urban taxation. Uh, and some of these earlier, more populist positions are driven uh, very much to, uh, to the margins. And this is true for Boston, this is true more. Uh, nationally, if you look at national uh, documents um, uh, at this at this time, so someone like Thomas Jefferson Coolidge, who came up earlier as a kind of you know financier, he's the head of the commission, um, the tax commission that studies the issue, and you know not very surprisingly recommends that financial forms of property are uh, exempt from uh, property taxation. And just uh, to speak to this large, uh, this last point, you know, can't quite elaborate on on the the full mechanics of it. But part of the argument is that it's ultimately when you are thinking about the great germ- great merger movement or kind of you know critical moment of cons- of economic consolidation um, uh, that is you know kind of featured in these these massive these kind of grand narratives about the period, the rise of these large corporations, national corporations. Uh, at the very end of the 19th, kind of turn of the 19th uh, to the 20th century, um, that it rested on the accomplishments of elites in a variety of fronts to push back against these radical pos- uh, positions and really stabilize property rights uh, in a particular way that makes uh, this type of consolidation uh, possible. Um, and just as a kind of end note, I want to say that it's also, you know, when you look at the politics, you also see how limited that is. Uh, So, yes, there is a great merger movement and there's consolidation, uh, but there's also a lot of um, other things going on. So it's not a foolproof system uh, that consolidates everything. Actually, the word consolidation is not uh, not uh, doesn't quite capture it because there's a lot of um, there's a a kind of pluralism to American capitalism that uh, very much lives on and continues to be incredibly uh, important into the into the 20th century.
1: So, what's going on with you now noam are you uh, are you working on any uh, new projects? What's next for you?
2: Uh, absolutely. so I'm um, collaborating currently, I'm collaborating with uh, Dr. Stefan Link, uh, who's at Dartmouth uh, on a project that we uh, collaboratively we call it the United States as a Developing Nation. And it's kind of revisiting um, the point is to try to you know maybe build on some of the insights that I shared with you today. Uh, but then really think about the U.S. in the late 19th century um, alongside other countries, other uh, countries that had a history as exporters of um, agricultural commodities. So The U.S. had cotton. Other places have wheat, other types of uh, agricultural commodities. Try to think about uh, the U.S. in relation to these other places and what made the U.S. Uh, uh, um, like uh, these other places like uh, Argentina, Brazil, other places primarily in Latin America, but elsewhere around the world as well. Uh, and and then also think about what made the us uh, uh, us uh, perhaps uh, unique in this in this period. So I'm trying to um, think about American capitalism in uh, in comparative ways uh, moving forward. and hopefully uh, you know my long-term uh, goal is to use this framework, and this type of this process of rethinking for uh, perhaps a new kind of synthetic approach for you know uh, the study of American capitalism in the late nineteenth century. Think about a new synthesis that would move us away from some of these modernization uh, narratives that have become so deeply entrenched and so powerful, and that makes sense if you're an American, uh, pretty much in the twentieth century. And they make a little less sense as we you know move into the era of Chinese hegemony. And suddenly a lot of what uh previous generations of historians took for granted about a, the power of American capitalism now becomes uh odd, weird, unlikely. Um, and I'm kind of trying to move into this material with this framework uh in mind.
1: We we hope that you remember the new books network for that uh for that next project. The book is Brahmin Capitalism, Frontiers of Wealth and Populism in America's First Gilded Age by Noam Magar. Uh, Thank you for being on the show today, Noam.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So to all our listeners, this has been a new Books Network presentation on the History Channel. Please tune in next time.